0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So tonight is March 14th and I'm continuing a series of talks based in part on the book The Way, the Mind and the Way, Buddhist Reflections Not- Buddhist Reflections on Life, so if anybody would like a resource to follow along, you certainly don't need it, but it's a nice book by Ajahn Sumedho, and you can come up afterward and take a look at it if you'd like. And so I'm beginning a series of talks based on Chapter 3, which is the chapter in the Three Refuges. So the whole point of our whole practice, and in this book of course too, is to use our life as a reflection. So instead of using our life to get some satisfaction or to get what we think we need or get away from what we think we don't need, we're using our life to reflect in the service of deepening our understanding. That's really what a spiritual life is about. It's a life of of cultivating our understanding or appreciating that a lot of our difficulty in life arises due to the lack of understanding or the limitations of our understanding. So in terms of the three refuges, it really the reflection question that we can work with for the next several weeks as I talk about the three refuges, the reflection question really is, well, what is dependable in our life? What can I really depend on for happiness? peace? What have I learned in my life that helps me understand what's dependable? Or it might be easier to reflect on what's not dependable. Like, where does our mind tend to go? And over the years we found that it's, it's not a dependable place for happiness. Like, I notice, you know, that my mind goes to sort of uh, habits of distraction like wanting entertainment, wanting to see a movie or more regularly wanting to read the news, wanting to find out if anything's happened in the world and and I watch this because it's such a predominant or uh, a regular arising in my mind so I watch it quite often I see it's all about wanting some happiness you know I want my satisfaction the, uh, there's a sort of I would call it a diluted thought, a diluted uh, sense of things that says if I go to the internet and read the New York Times one more time, see if there's another interesting article there, you know, or listen to Democracy Now, or you know, I might I might be entertained for a while, you know, or somehow get some joy from that activity. And uh, I see, so my mind is it has this habit that says this is a dependable source of happiness. But I, with even a little bit of reflection, I realize it's not a dependable source of happiness. Actually, all I have to do is sort of watch my heart while I'm reading the news. And I realize it's not really <laughs> happiness at all. It's just the heart gets all caught up and entangled. And <laughs> but it's, uh, it's juicy. And I think my mind and I think all of our minds, to some degree, are confused by what's juicy and what's really satisfying, or what's conducive to happiness. By juicy, I mean it's energizing. But, you know, anger is energizing. About to be eaten by a tiger is energizing. <laughs> doesn't mean it's conducive to happiness. So there are a lot of times what we do in life, I think mostly blindly, is we pursue things that are energizing, but aren't really to our... Uh, really aren't wholesome, really aren't leading to lasting peace and happiness, deepening understanding. It's just a rush of energy is what it is. And just when you think about what people are into, like, uh, I mean, even even sort of a lot of our instincts, habits around dating, uh, sexual activities, it's, it's more about the rush than sort of having... Uh, Cultivating a peaceful, abiding, you know, with a wholesome relationship with other people, you know, and all of our extracurricular activities, whether it's, you know, who knows what it is that we do, but a lot of what we do, it's just there to stimulate, kind of provoke some kind of energetic response in the mind and body, and we get a little bit of rush from it. And it's just what I described, even my habits with the news is really, I see it in that, on that level. So for the next few weeks, we'll keep coming back to this question, what's dependable, what's not dependable? Like, what is it that um, is a, something, a trustworthy refuge for this mind, for this heart? What's worthy of our commitment? And it's actually, uh, uh, to not know can be a very useful place just to acknowledge that we don't know. Because that, that really opens us up. I mean, that, that's a sign that we're really awake and curious if we don't know. Because we know we do want a refuge. And if we know we don't know what it is, then it means that we're going to move through our life wondering, is this a refuge? The mind's inclined in this direction, and we can reflect, is this a refuge? Is this leading to some kind of lasting peace and happiness? Whatever it is I'm inclined to, reading the news again, or doing this again, is this conducive to real peace, real lasting happiness? And we can just see, like we may not know, so we can just go with an open mind and see what happens when I do this, when I engage in this activity. So, all religious spiritual traditions work with refuge. It's it's you know I think it's unavoidable because you know a spiritual path is just about change. That's what spiritual path means. It means we're changing our current orientation, our current way of being in life to another way of being in life that we call better. And so we call it you know we give it a word like spiritual. We're moving from a worldly existence to a better, more spiritual existence way of being in the world. So whenever we want to change, you know, there's a certain technology that helps, that facilitates a human being to change. And what are we changing? We're actually changing the way the mind is, the way the mind relates to experience, the way the mind understands experience. But it's not so easy to begin directly at that level of understanding. So often, you know, we begin with symbols. You know, just uh, just the understanding that my life and what my mind, heart is dependent on, like seeking sense pleasure, like the sense pleasure of listening to the news, and the sense pleasure of eating food, and the sense pleasure of being able to rest and sleep when I want, you know, and the sense pleasure of not being able to sort of uh, not be bothered by things, being able to just hang out and listen to birds or something. So we're dependent. We may think we're dependent on those things. and uh, But we see the limitations of that. We see that that's not lasting, or there's got to be something more dependable than that. So we create a placeholder for that, some representation not knowing what that refuge is or what that other way of being is, but we'll create something, you know. I remember some philosopher said something like, you know, even if there isn't a God, we would create a God. We create some idea to represent for us this idea of transcendence. Now, what are we transcending? Well, we're just All that means, I mean, you can think of it in more lofty terms, but really transcendence literally means is we're transcending our current view, our current way of relating and being in the world. We're sort of moving. I remember one of my early teachers, uh, Swami Shivananda, talked a lot about detach, attach, that in order to sort of take a step towards change, it's like you have to let go before you can move. Even like when you climb a ladder, it requires letting go, and then you take a hold, and then you let go, and then you take a hold. And it's a lot like that in life. And so we use literal or symbols, literal things or symbols or um, specific activities to help us. That These aren't the actual refuge, but they allow us to begin to work with our current situation and this is true with the Buddhist tradition too you know we have the literal representations of the three refuges so in Buddhism all sort of cultural Buddhists you know people who grew up in Buddhist cultures they were taught as little children to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha and uh, monks and nuns and and devoted lay practitioners, even in this country, even here at the center, uh, we continue that tradition, where we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And people take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and they have no idea what that means to them, let alone what it means in terms of the tradition. But they do know, for them it may be, in the beginning, just a placeholder-like, Taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, it means not living my life in the way that I'm living my life. So I'm taking refuge in another way of being because the deepest my insight is right now, which is is deep, is this way isn't trustworthy. This way isn't uh, something that's dependable that I really trust. Otherwise... If I really trusted it, I wouldn't need common ground. I wouldn't need a particular spiritual tradition. I would simply invest in whatever my current way of being is. So it's okay in the beginning if our refuge is that simple. Like we create a symbol, and you can use the three refuges in the Buddhist tradition, and just say I take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and you just have an idea that what that's that's just a placeholder for I have this deepening understanding that the habits of my mind, what I'm taking sort of refuge in currently, how I'm getting through the day, how I'm getting through the week and through the decade, isn't very wise. It isn't very dependable. Yeah, it helps me, you know, looking forward to reading the news or looking forward to my weekend. may get me through the day or through the week, but I'm not really... uh, I'm not really developing wisdom over the years with this refuge. And so we say, I need a deeper refuge, and I don't know what it is. No, it's not this. Or I have a sense that it's something beyond this, something deeper than this. And then if we do that refuge, then once we have that placeholder, whether it's the statue of a Buddha or some particular set of teachings that you know really sum it, sum it up or point to something other than this way, this habit way of being in the world, or some ritual like sitting meditation, or some center like common ground, or some tradition like Theravada Buddhism, or the Vipassana meditation tradition. So once we have a placeholder, then that placeholder actually helps us reflect, like on what is dependable in our life and what isn't dependable in our life. And we start to clarify, and our refuge begins to change. From some symbol to some ideal you know we might have an ideal now so the symbol stands for an ideal and the ideal may be like not clinging or non-attachment or trusting letting things be what they are or a deeper you know a deeper view so that some of the teachings start to come alive even if it's just on a conceptual level, like uh, those of you who have been coming for a while, when we were talking about the Four Noble Truths, uh, Ajahn Semedo talks about <clears throat> sort of the, the view that gets established with insight as the uh, same things in our life as everything arises and passes and is not self. So. Maybe this is something we can take refuge. And instead of that just being sort of an arcane statement, all things come and go and are not self, it's like, that doesn't seem like a refuge. But as that concept comes alive, and we actually start connecting it to experience, so it's, it's a real understanding. It like, it's not just a placeholder, but it actually represents our experience, our understanding of our experience. So we have this rational, this uh, view, but this view is 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 quite strong because it, it comes it it uh, our experience really meshes; it, it doesn't challenge that view, and so it, it actually is a support; it becomes a refuge. And then the deeper refuge is when, in that moment, it's not a concept that we're taking refuge in but the direct experience. Like there's something the heart-mind is opening to right now that provides that kind of refuge. So for the next few weeks I'll talk about the three refuges, how the Buddha, how the Dhamma, how the Sangha, these three refuges that are traditionally used in Buddhism, how they move from this literal or symbolic uh, form to an ideal, to some direct experience. The direct experience is we actually touch something uh, directly as an experience that no matter what anybody else says, there there is a direct experience of feeling safe, of feeling protected. Protected not by something external, but protected by an understanding or a way of seeing, or a way of being in the moment. And it's that's a, that direct experience of refuge then makes us independent. And they use this language in the original teachings of the Buddha and the other disciples of the Buddha. They would often talk about when their insight was deep, they would say that they are now independent. Meaning that they're not dependent on the, uh, their teacher anymore, that their understanding isn't dependent on a teacher or a tradition, but it's independent of that because they have their direct experience and so then the refuge is much stronger. It doesn't matter if our teacher turns out to be a fake or if it turns out that you know this happens or that happens in the community because our understanding is based on our direct experience, not on some tradition that we're learning from. So let's talk about the Buddha. Most of you know, of course, that the Buddha is a title. It's not just a person. They're, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, as the, you know, as the tradition says, There are many, many, there have been many, many, many Buddhas. And uh, a Buddha is just somebody who has deep insight. um, And this deep insight into how it is, into the nature of the mind, it arises without the support of somebody who has really deep insight. So you and I can't become Buddhas, in this lifetime at least, because we've got... A set of teachings, and so just it's just a technical term. To be a Buddha, you can't be using a set of teachings that tell you how to be a Buddha, how to become awakened. You have to uh, find this experience of insight or awakening uh, more or less blindly, sort of following your own nose, so to speak. We have a roadmap because there are men and women who have had deep insight, and they've pass these teachings down to us and so we've got a set of instructions to follow. So the, that's what Buddha means. It means a, uh, an awakened one and it refers to somebody who's awakened without the help of anybody else and or without somebody sort of pointing out the, the deep experience of awakening. Now as a literal or symbolic experience the idea is uh, do we believe a human being can be a human being, I mean, have a mind and a body, have relationships, have to feed themselves and deal with aging and all the other things that comes with being a human being. Do we believe, do we have um, a sense that it's possible for a human being to be free of suffering? So the Buddha, as a symbol, represents that possibility now you don't have to it doesn't help actually to believe in it but it does help to have an open mind like do we have evidence that it's not possible I mean maybe you do I don't have any evidence that it's not possible I know that it doesn't seem easy <laughs> in my own life but it seems possible that I can hold that out as a possibility and it seems a useful possibility it seems useful to me to have a statue of a serene-looking person who seems to be relaxed and kind of right there in the middle of things as a symbol of this possibility of being a human being without being burdened by being a human being, without being burdened by a mind or a body or all the things that come with having a human existence. It seems really useful to have that because then it, it sets in motion an ongoing reflection. Well. Is whatever I'm doing, however I'm relating right now, is it leading toward that kind of ease and peace and wisdom and, and connection or tenderness, or is it leading in another direction? So on, uh, on the most basic level, taking refuge in the Buddha, you know, if you don't like that Buddha, I mean, if you don't like the historic guy who lived 2,600 years ago, it doesn't matter who we what how we set up this sim- symbolic literal representation of freedom but if we don't think a freedom is possible who is going to look for it in their own heart in their own life i mean if we think this is all we can expect whatever sort of degree of happiness is ordinary you know relative happiness of being relatively safe and having, you know, enough food, most of us, and enough safety, enough shelter. If this is all there is, then, and this is all we think there is, then we tend not to be interested in a deeper investigation. So, um, I would suggest, you know, if you're not overwhelmed by the basic survival in your, li- in your life now, just, you keep your mind open. To the possibility of a deeper kind of happiness, a happiness that involves this heart being unentangled, even in the midst of difficult situations, and in being unentangled, it means that our heart is responding in the moment with love and with wisdom, as opposed to fear and greed and neediness and craving and confusion. And not just when life is going well, but even when things get really difficult, like we're losing somebody we really care about, or the body's starting to fall apart, we're getting old, or we're dying. Even then, that the heart, hold that possibility that the heart would be unencumbered by the experience of old age and dying. Not weighed down by loss. Not weighed down by humiliation. So, we create an image or uh, some sort of way to uh, hold that place, that possibility of freedom, of deep happiness, a happiness that's not dependent on the particular conditions or circumstances of the moment. The kind of happiness that we would take into any situation that wouldn't come and go. So... I'm not saying there is that happiness or there isn't that happiness, because I don't think it's useful. But I think it's useful to investigate, to use our life to investigate how to move in that direction, how to understand whether there is this happiness. And what's so clear to me is that we can move away from that kind of happiness. We can move away, we can move in the direction of more attachment, where the heart is more encumbered, more entangled, more caught up, more dependent on conditions being a particular way, and then suffering when the conditions aren't that particular way. So if we can move this direction, certainly we can move the other direction, where the heart is more equanimous and less dependent. And so, this, you know, as a, um, a symbol, then, where we begin to see that this symbol then begins to um, create, as we live our life, an ideal. We begin to translate or to sort of um, round out this symbol. We begin to understand it in terms of our experience, like when our heart is skillful, we're relating skillfully to the conditions, meaning we're not struggling with this, the conditions, and we, we learn something about what Buddha means, what awakening means, or what freedom means. And when the heart's really caught up, really entangled, we learn something about what non-Buddha means, you know, the opposite means. You can call it ignorance or suffering. And, you know, this the basic ideal of the Buddha is the ideal of purity, the possibility of this heart being pure. And we think about it in three ways, and this relates to the Eightfold Path that I talked about the last few weeks, which is the purity of our actions, the purity of the content of the mind, and the purity of our understanding. So when we, when we talk about um, a deep kind of happiness, it's a happiness that arises when our actions are pure, our mind is pure, and our understanding is pure. Now, I know pure, the word pure has some sort of connotations that may trigger some things in you, so feel free to substitute a different word. But by purity, it, it means, uh, another way you can think about the word purity is the absence of self-centeredness. So impure would mean actions that are colored, that are coming from self-centeredness. And impure, our impure mind is a mind state that's colored, that's affected by a lot of self-centered thinking. And impure view or impure understanding is an understanding that arises from a lot of self-centered orientation. Like the world, our understanding of the world, revolves around me and others. And so that's what impure means. Impurity means actions, mind, and understanding that arises free of self-centered thinking, free of self-centeredness. And so in Buddhism, you often see, like I think even in this statue back there, but most of the Buddhas, uh, the base where the Buddha's sitting is a lotus flower, some symbol of a lotus flower. And uh, you've probably seen water li- lilies and lotuses, and you know that they like swamps. And uh, even though they're rooted, you know, there in the muck, at the bottom of the swamp, the stem arises, rises up through the water, and then the flower blooms there. And it's interesting how it's, you know, the like a lot of flowers, they have that tendency not to, like even if water... Even if it's a misty day, the water tends to bead right off of it. So there's this, as a symbol, there's this idea of being in the world but not being caught by the world, you know, living right in the middle of the swamp, but there's something pure. And I think it's it's a useful symbol, if we understand it correctly, that the as we move from sort of a symbol to a deeper understanding of purity, that we understand it's not about getting out of the world, this purity. It's really, the purity is about how we are, how we're relating in the middle of our life, in the middle of our relationships. How do we relate to our mind? How do we relate to the body? How do we relate? That's what's pure or impure, the relating. So it doesn't mean that it doesn't even mean that anger doesn't arise in the heart. But the question is how do we relate to the anger when it arises? Do we turn the anger into some self centered activity, or do we see anger is like this? So even there there's a kind of purity. There is anger, but there's there's not a an adherence to it, an attachment or identification with it and because of that the anger tends to move away to transform it doesn't doesn't get caught or it doesn't get reinforced as we work on the level of uh, at this, uh, with this practice of learning to take refuge in the Buddha so we're learning to take refuge in the purity of the heart that's probably one of the easiest ways to talk about this aspect of refuge so the Buddha has the Buddhist tradition has three refuges they're just three facets of the same thing the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha so this part we're really talking about the purity of the heart that we're taking refuge in or the essence of the mind and heart that we're taking refuge in. The the quality of the mind and heart, or the capacity of the mind and heart, not to be caught by anything that might arise in our life, or that is currently arising in our life. How to be intimate, but not caught by whatever's happening. That essence of the heart is what we practice reflecting on Meaning we we practice understanding, recognizing it, and trusting it, and taking refuge with it, taking refuge in it. And so it's equally important not just to reflect on that purity, but to also understand the opposites. Like those times when we live more or less like an animal, where the mind is completely fixated on the survival instinct. And you know, as a human animal, we're not just—we fi- don't just get fixated on physical survival, but we also get fixated, maybe more often, on psychological survival. Like, do people like me? Do people respect me? Am I getting what I, you know, am I getting the respect I deserve? So that, in a way, is for most of us the equivalent of an animal sort of fixating, obsessing on physical survival. And so we see that. And in this chapter, Ajahn Sumedho also talks about that even, um, I don't know if you want to call them darker states or more confusion, where it's like we can take the survival instinct and it it kind of spins out of control a little bit so that we get obsessed in a way of protecting ourselves in a way that actually doesn't protect ourselves at all. So we're not even being an efficient animal at that point. And, you know, we can think of these when people get into very uh, addicted behaviors. And so they're trying to take care of themselves, but they're actually destroying themselves and taking care of themselves. And just a, a lot of the people that we might call evil in the world, you know, who do really destructive things in the world. And we see, we can see how... Because of the capacity to think, we can obsess about protecting ourselves and justify all kinds of actions that don't protect us and certainly don't help other people. And that's how I think we explain, how we can explain some of the despicable things that happen in the world. It's really a mind gone out of control through the process of obsession driven by fear or craving, we can kind of create these little pockets of real delusion. And then a person will just, or groups of people will act out of that very specific pocket of delusion. And so this would be the opposite of purity. One of the things that as we get to this place in the refuge, you know, in this process of reflecting on what's dependable, and we really begin to understand the idea, like the ideal of a pure heart, a heart that's uh, unentangled, uh, un- not tangled, entangled with our lives, with our experience. Then we begin to, uh, something that arises with that ongoing reflection is a growing sense of responsibility like we begin to feel responsible for how we're relating or we could say i could say we feel responsible for the degree of purity or impurity that's present so we become less and less negligent and more and more vigilant to vigilant in maintaining this reflection and again, the reflection is first remembering the possibility of purity of a heart that's uh, not uh, not caught, not burdened by life, free. So remembering the possibility of freedom, and then and then sort of deepening the understanding and really starting to apply it moment by moment. Like, is the heart is the heart relating? with attachment now or with freedom, with purity now? And is how I'm relating leading to more purity or less purity now? So this taking refuge in the Buddha is something we do all the time. Sometimes in the Thai forest tradition, this is the Buddha is the one who knows. So it's uh, a quality of awareness Ken McLeod, a Buddhist teacher in California, says about the Buddha uh, in its essence, taking refuge in the Buddha in its essence is empty, clear, unceasing awareness, devoid or empty of intrinsic being. So this freedom that that we hold out as a possibility is the freedom, it's the capacity of the heart to know like taking refuge in knowing or being or wakefulness which is also taking refuge in insight that that place where we see things as they are and this is the place of greatest purity so it's not purity isn't a stance normally we think like casually we think if I'm going to have a refuge I want a refuge I can stand on but actually what we find is the refuge is a process it's like we take refuge in a process or a, a, a way of being as opposed to a thing so we might start out with the refuge being a noun like Buddha and he represents a guy or represents a tradition or represents in our mind a thing but the deeper our experience as we begin to understand the ideal and then have a more and more direct experience of buddha then we understand the buddha isn't a thing at all it's a way of being and this way of being is always accessible it's always available when this heart lets go lets go of attachment and this is uh, this is what we take responsibility we take responsibility for this process. Like when we're caught, we take responsibility for being all caught up. And we understand and we appreciate there will be consequences for being caught up, for being attached. In the Buddhist tradition, we say things like whenever there's attachment, there's suffering that just automatically follows. And when there's non attachment, then there's non-suffering. And it's not just there in that moment, but also in terms of what it sets in motion. So when the heart's all caught up, attached, then we set in motion suffering for ourselves and others. And when the heart is relatively or completely non-attached, free of attachment, then we set in motion freedom, non-attachment, the freedom of not being attached. i just read one section from this chapter in Ajahn Chamado's book. He really talks about taking refuge in the Buddha as uh, wisdom, standing for wisdom. He says, when we take refuge in the Buddha, we are taking refuge in what is wise. The word Buddha is really a term for human wisdom. It means the one who knows truth or that which knows. So it's not something we know once, like, okay, I figured it out. But when, when he says, that which knows, it's an ongoing knowing. It's like moment-by-moment uh, moment knowing. That's where the freedom is. It's in that moment-by-moment knowing, as opposed to, oh, I know it, and now I don't have to know it anymore because I, I know it, I got it. And then we've conceptualized it. But that's not that's not ultimately the Buddha. It's, uh, it's like people, uh, wise people, when people ask them if they're enlightened, they're probably either not say anything or they say something like, um, there are enlightened moments, right? There are moments when the mind is in the place, is in the uh, position of being Buddha, so in the position of knowing without the attachment. And those are called enlightened moments, or moments where the heart is not bound up by what happens when there is attachment. But to say that I'm enlightened means that the person has misunderstood the process of awakening. Because it's not like there's a moment and then we can sort of rely on that moment, the understanding that arose in that moment, and it's sort of fixes us for life. It's like our sort of goal that we get to keep. But it's a process we begin to discern, or a way of being that we begin to discern, sometimes kind of far away, but we just have an intuitive sense. Sometimes we really touch that, we kind of enter that way of being, and we experience directly that kind of freedom, the freedom that comes from a a mind that's not attached in any way, not resisting life in any way, or resisting experience in any way. And for as long as the mind is not resisting or getting attached, we're enlightened, or Buddha, or free. And then as soon as the mind starts to get attached again, and caught up again, then that's just something that we remember having happened. And it's it's useful to remember that, because we might i mean if we get attached to that memory it's not so useful but if we can recall how it is that that those moments of freedom arose then that's quite useful to remember because then we might be able to sort of create the conditions where those that sort of same stream of causality happens again and we have more moments of freedom of not being not resisting life not getting attached but simply being wide open and seeing and Knowing and responding from that openness, that non-attachment to whatever arises in our in our life in that moment. And so to finish up this paragraph, Ajahn says, "If you call yourself a Buddhist, you can think you've joined a religion, or you can think of yourself as one who's taking refuge in wisdom. The way to be wise is by reflecting on and contemplating things. Wisdom is something that's already here. It's not something you'll get." It's something you use. It's wrong to think you're going to become wise by meditating. Meditation is a way of learning how to use the wisdom that's already there. So in meditation, you're contemplating and reflecting, <coughs> or the truth of the way it is. <coughs> Excuse me. is. You're actually using wisdom while you're doing that. Wisdom is not something you don't have but it's something that maybe you don't always use or aren't always aware of. So I thought for the reflection this week, we could just start with... uh, uh, noticing what works in our own life in terms of a placeholder, like what actually for us, and it will be different for each of us depending on how we've been conditioned. Like for some of you, the statue of the Buddha will give you the eebie-jeebies. I mean, you just feel like it's some strange cult. There's some guy sitting there with this sort of weird thing on his head, and this weird base, and like this guy does some weird thing with his fingers that stands for a particular teaching, the dependent origination teaching. It's just a particular mudra, as it's called, a hand gesture that represents a teaching. And it might just feel weird to sort of use a symbol like a statue of the Buddha. For other people, it, it, has a, it can be kind of quite effective. But think about what in your life works as a placeholder and then use it. I mean, if it really works as a placeholder, then bringing up that image or having that image around or whatever the... It may even be a set of teachings or uh, whatever it might be, then use it to to stimulate an ongoing reflection on freedom and non-freedom in your life. Like the possibility, like maintaining this idea that freedom is possible or is freedom possible in this particular situation I'm in right now. So holding that as a possibility, like there may be a refuge that exists even in this situation that's going on right now. And to just see how that experience of freedom either manifests or doesn't, and how its presence or absence, that there's something we can be responsible for. Like are we actively, are we living in a way that's actualizing the refuge? or something else? Are we taking refuge in something that's truly dependable or something that's not dependable? And then, then the next part that I recommend that you work with, because it's a lot of people come into Buddhist practice in this culture because they've gotten burnt a little bit by devotional energy. And on the surface, there's not a lot of devotional energy at a Buddhist meditation center like Common Ground. But for these refuges, for refuge to really work, we need to bring, we, we need to sort of, the whole point of a refuge is to create something that allows us to make a commitment. Because by making a full commitment, it really helps the change process. I mean, if we want to change our life, we need to get committed and getting committed means we have to get our whole life, mind committed, which means we have to use our emotions, our reason, our rationality, our understanding, and our will, or volition. So, Jnana uh, Panika a well-known uh, Buddhist monk, a Westerner, I think from uh, Germany originally, he's dead now, but uh, a well-known translator of a lot of the Buddhist texts, He lived in Sri Lanka as a Buddhist monk for many decades, died not too long ago. But he talks about uh, faith and taking refuge in terms of getting these three aspects of our mind in sync with each other. The emotion, so this is the devotional energy. The ra- uh, rational part of the mind or the understanding part, And the volitional part, like we're going to do something about it. We're going to act on our faith or on our convictions. And so we want to, you know, as we have our placeholder and as we develop the idea, like the more direct experience of our understanding that comes from experience of what is purity and what is the opposite of purity, then we want to rally these three forces in the mind the understanding, the, the feeling of devotion, like uh, like a real heart sense, like I'm committed to this. I love this. This is beautiful. This is something I want to cherish and protect. And not to belittle that, it's not alone, you know, that's, that energy is incomplete. But that energy, that devotional energy, for all of us to some degree, now some of us will be more devotional than others, but everybody is devotional a little bit meaning getting the emotional energy involved. For some of you, it will be just, you know, the way it will express itself is that you love the common ground community or you love your Dharma friends or you love your close friends who share your spiritual aspirations. You know, it may be as simple as that, just that kind of deep uh, reverence and respect and care you have for the supports for your spiritual life, like your good spiritual friends. And then the last is volitional, meaning you're acting on it. So that may be your commitment to daily sitting or to showing up on Wednesday night or to whatever you do to act out your devotion you know, and to maintain this ongoing reflection. So we'll continue with this discussion of refuges for at least two more weeks and maybe a few more weeks too, which is how it goes. But uh, there's still time now if people have any questions about the talk. Or maybe you have some uh, thoughts from your own experience, taking refuge in the Buddha or this ideal idea of purity, and how that's worked for you in your life. Anything you'd like to share with the group? Mm-hmm. Well, I was wondering, do you, do you think that uh, following the news is inherently bad? It uh, depends on how you relate. You know, where your heart is when you're doing it. I notice my heart often um, is—I'm still figuring it out—but there's there's some combination uh, of—I think mostly the predominant feeling is a kind of self-righteousness, like relishing um, people getting their just desserts, and uh, (laughs) you know, in a subtle way. I mean, this is. uh, And uh, so I just see that a lot of what's getting watered and when I'm reading the news isn't necessarily wholesome stuff. But I do think it's possible, uh, it's definitely possible to um, do things that helps us to understand what's going on, like reading the news or listening to other people talk about what's going on, to do that in a way that's skillful. Yeah, I think that's possible. We just have to observe what's going on in our heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Brian. So, what well, we were talking about is a I was thinking about um a big situation was think about nine eleven. Um I was thinking just what I you know first uh Yeah. And I think it's because whether consciously or not, they've come to understand what actually gets people's attention. And fear gets people's attention. And uh, desire gets people, you know, stimulating people's desire gets people's attention. And so that's used a lot in media. And and I notice that even in terms of what I might bring up and how I might relate to people, I realize that like when I'm in conversation with someone, that there's a tendency to want to be a little provocative because it sort of uh, brings up some energy in the interaction. And uh, so we, ha- we have as a culture, maybe, maybe it's true for all human cultures, uh, this tendency to do things that stimulate energy, whether or not it's wholesome, and to, not to appreciate things that soothe and calm and are conducive to peace. And it's because peace is a very profound, sublime kind of happiness, but it's uh, but we're kind of gross people, and we don't necessarily appreciate that kind of happiness. We kind of are on the level like we want things to be stirred up, we want to feel alive, even if it's painful. That's sort of the level most of us are at most of the time, I think. And it's why the media is is the way it is and the way the culture the culture is the way that it is, because that's the way we are. I mean that's what we react and respond to. Probably the our you were talking earlier about the, the devotional
1: energy
0: and the engaging We were talking, I we were talking about purity, uh, and I believe we were reading some book at the time. He said something along the lines of the state of mind that uh, was, uh, it was right, uh, empty and devoid of being. Mm-hmm. And when you read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, engaging the emotional energy seems to be imply being. So, and then I thought, well, maybe the devoid the, the of being is like a state of mind toward which you we know, might be ruling. Really, uh, as it's been Uh-huh. But I, I thought you did a good job sort of articulating it. And it is, it's a very subtle point. Uh, question that you're asking but i think it's a really appropriate question and the real answer is that this is an ongoing reflection so just to reflect on what it like that statement devoid of being to reflect on what that means and not to be distracted by the reaction because the reaction to that statement devoid of being is a thought it's just a thought that that's that's scary the actual experience of being devoid of being it just means that the quality of knowing becomes so predominant that there isn't a part of the mind creating a somebody who has a state of being. It doesn't mean that there's non-existence. It just means that the mind's not constructing a somebody who has an existence. It's not constructing that sense of self in that moment. So the mind, because it's completely devoted taking refuge in the Buddha, in the one who knows, that quality of the mind that is just awake, like a mirror, reflecting, knowing how it is. It's so there in that experience of knowing that it's not constructing a sense. There's Mark who's got this beautiful pure mind who's knowing. There's no sort of part of the mind that's doing that extra thing in that moment. And so that's what it means. When we say devoid of being, it's not that the existence is all of a sudden annihilated in that moment. but there's something extra that is dropped in those moments, and that something extra—it's—it's uh, it's relevant to recognize those moments when that something extra isn't there. It's—it's it's an important insight. Mm-hmm. And the, the the other question you asked, it's I think, and I really another great reflection is to reflect on this emotional energy and to see. Can it come into sync with that deep experience of the mind becoming very pure, like in the state of knowing, without the sense of being the witness or the somebody who is knowing? So how, how does emotional energy, devotional energy, fit with that experience? But I'll tell you, what happens is, the more we trust this path of awakening, or whatever you want to call this, that we do, love and devotion comes up. Devotional energy gets stimulated. And we will want because of our habit, we will want to turn that into some ego pursuit, like, oh, I must be onto something good for me. But it that the emotional energy can also get purified. It can become like instead of turning it into some self project, it can be just this upwelling of goodness, of kindness, like my life is now free to be a good person, to take care of all things as best I can. And it's not something profound even. It's just, this, it's just like the, the energy of life, and we're just willing to let it be expressed uh, for the good of whatever happens to be in front of us in that moment. And so that's a way that that devotional energy can manifest that's not in a self-centered mode. And I think we have to leave it here. So why don't we just take a few breaths together and let go of the words. Don't worry about remembering everything or understanding everything that's been said. Having a sense of purity here, now, the heart or mind that knows, and then we recall our deepest aspiration for our lives Living, practicing in a way that supports the happiness and well-being of all beings. So not only do we try to live in a way that supports our own happiness and peace, but living, practicing in a way that supports the peace and well-being and the liberation of all beings without exception. May all beings be at ease.